Okay, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B Magic. As always, I got my brother Noise with me. And I'm really excited about today's show. You know, a lot of times when we have folks on, they talk about politics more more in terms of things that they had to go through or their families had to go through that kind of led to their migration or, you know, political things that affected them when they came to Canada or to North America. But today, for the first time on this podcast, we have somebody who works in the world of politics, which is... Uh, which I'm really excited to to have this conversation with. So today we're joined by a principal speechwriter and media relations coordinator for Ontario's NDP caucus, Jared Walker. Jared, thanks for making the time out to join us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, you know, politics, uh, it seems like, is a hot-button issue. It kind of, especially right now, you know, with everything going on with um, policing and the whole Black Lives Matter movement, there's a a lot going on. We'll we'll touch on that. but we also want to get into a bit of your story as well yeah, sure. and how you became established in the world of politics. But as we like to do with this show, uh, we like to take things back and talk a little bit about how you began and how your family began. So, you know, when did your family first come to Canada and where did you uh, migrate from? Yeah, um, so my my mom is my mom is Jamaican. Um, my dad's side of the family is Dominican. Uh, but I never knew him, and actually, there's a whole story about like a few years ago. I met my, I, I found out about my three half siblings for the first oh, time, wow. and wow. like met them all, and so that's like a whole nother thing. But yeah. I, I, it was when I was coming up, it was just me and my mom, and we arrived. We came to Canada sort of via the U.S. I'm from the Caribbean when I was seven or eight. Um, maybe eight or nine. Uh, she's a teacher, um, and uh, she was kind of following the work. And then we landed here, and because uh, because uh, God has a sense of humor, we'll call it, um, <laughs> Mike Harris was premier, like, yeah. like became premier right after we arrived, and there were no jobs in teaching. <laughs> um, and she had to go through the same thing that a lot of immigrants have to go through, right, where mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you did this where you're from? Uh, well, you don't have any Canadian experience. So then there's like the whole getting recertified and and trying to find work in the thing that you're supposed to be be able to do and having people punk you even though you're better at their job, at your mm-hmm. job than they are and all of that stuff. And that's kind of the story of um, our early time. Uh, when we When we got here, things were pretty hard. We lived in a shelter for a while. Um, but then sort of year by year, you, you can't, you know, the hustle, man, you can't knock the hustle. And my Mm -hmm. mom kind of figured it out. And, um, and here, here I am, I'm, was very fortunate to have, uh, sort of a, a supportive home environment that like cared about education and uh and dispensed many ass whoopings so <laughs> no, those man. are those are probably the most educational yes yeah, yeah. All, all kinds of education um about what the bottom of a slipper looks like and all the rest <laughs> of that good stuff but yeah here i am um like you said you moved at age seven age eight um i moved to canada around like age 10 and like i like i Feel like i remember a lot but i don't know how much of it i've made up in my mind but yeah. what like what memories do you have of back home and growing up um so 
of back home, I lived mostly in um, in the Virgin Islands. And then, like, even when we came back to Canada, like, once we got on our feet, there was, like, we spent every summer in Jamaica, pretty much. Um, so, like, lots of shit disturbing and, like, you know, stealing the neighbor's mangoes and, like, <laughs> me and my cousin, like, my... <laughs> Um, one of my enduring childhood memories about this kind of thing is we were like, to the, like the, one of the neighbors like down the road had like the, the like illest fruit game, like fruit tree game, like all the things. Um, and so we always used to like climb his tree and like, you know, run that shit. And, um, that was a problem. Obviously we got told to not do it all the time. And so, um, this one time my cousin was climbing the the tree and I was supposed to be the lookout and he fell and like later on I found out he broke his arm um oh. and like so I so vividly remember dragging him out of the yard and into our yard so it looked like he fell out of our tree and then <laughs> going to get help so we wouldn't get in trouble um but yeah that was that that's like that's what I remember first or early of home and like lots of food Food always, always food, always church, being a church, like, every day, sun up to sundown. Um, and then when we got here, one of my most enduring memories is, like, I'm a really strong skater because literally, like, maybe the third week we got to Canada, my mom was like, all these people do, skate. And if you want to, like, get to, if you want, like, to be one of them, the one of them or for them to, like, accept you, you have to know how to skate, too. And like Don Cherry, like Hockey Night in Canada was always on in our house because like like my mom is like a, I mean kind of like a, a an anthropologist and was like very into understanding the Canadian psyche and like you know understanding what people are about and so like I learned really early took um took public skating classes for free back when that was a thing that Ontario still did for kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and like now I'm I'm married to a Canadian who's like family is very, very Canadian. And like when we go skating, like I'm dragging her up the ice surface. <laughs> so it's like one of those kind of those funny things. But yeah, man, just a, a lot of especially when we got here, like a lot of trying to figure out how to like balance how to fitting in with like how much of yourself you can bring into the space. And like that's been kind of a recurring story of my life is like figuring out what the code is and like when to switch when is appropriate and how to mm -hmm. talk like white people talk or talk how rich people talk or talk how politicians talk um and i kind of through a long circuitous way ended up making it kind of my living that's dope yeah when, when you first moved to canada what area did you and your mom settle like we were, um, we were in like the West End, Mount Dennis area for a while, um, and then we moved to like North North Toronto, like North York Scarborough, kind of mm. like right on the bubble, um, and that's where I went to, to elementary, like to to junior high up in in like North York Scarborough, so like, um, like there was I there was this uh, plaza across the street from like my junior high peanut plaza and they had like 
an arcade, which I, in retrospect, I now as like an adult realized was a bar with one arcade machine in it. <laughs> um, but like we used to be on that arcade, like playing Street Fighter all the time when we were supposed to be, you know, in class or, or whatever else. And that's, <laughs> Yeah. Man, there was a bar in Brampton exactly the same. Matt Guggen, I don't know if you know that one. Um, I don't know the name of it, but it was like it was a bar, and they just had the one Street Fighter machine in there. So I don't know what it is with the Street Fighter cabinets, but <laughs> yo, man, it was. <laughs> and like, as as an adult now, and as also as a person who used to be like a teenager trying to get into bars and not succeeding, yeah. like I like how how did I just how did we all all of us like none of us older than like. I don't know, like 12, 11, 13, walk into this bar and spend <laughs> so much money on this Street Fighter and not get thrown out. Like, people were fully fully there drinking in the middle of the day. Anyway. I think it's safe to say our generation is the reason Street Fighter games are no longer in bars because yes, I, think, I think bar owners <laughs> got mad at giving us loonies or whatever it was back then to, uh, to play these games. So... Uh, yeah. At least we created that change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they always used to be so mad. And I was like, but like literally there's like two dozen of us in here every day. Like, yeah. what do you expect? Uh, oh, man. Um, how, what was your introduction into politics or becoming aware of politics? I mean, I lived in in a house that was it, that was always like pretty, pretty, pretty political. Um in the sense that like you know you know your history you have to know where you came from um and that is like everything culture um I, like listening to like um roots reggae coming up and people talking about you know the history of of where we're from and then like my my family was always very like there's two there's two major political parties in Jamaica, the PNP, which is like the left wing kind of party and the JLP, which is the more kind of right wing party um, that uh, the CIA uh, kind of tried to prop up in Jamaica. Um, mm. You can obviously tell which side of uh, the <laughs> divide we lie on. And so like, yeah, I just I learned a lot about about politics back home, um, about how like systems work and who they work for. Um, and like, especially, uh, I, I, I found myself a lot of the time as I, especially as I started to get older, like looking around the room and like being the only person like me in those places. And so kind of trying to like having a, to know why that is, or, you know, um, why, why people, um, like why people have to, to leave uh, where they come from to come here and like what colonialism means and like um, all of all of those things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, politics has always been like a big part of 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 my life. Um, my mom has like always been like a very education dis disciplinarian type like and so like we like she doesn't like talk to me about like, you know, feelings or whatever but like she'll call me and be like did you see what trump did and like that's 90 percent of our conversations so it's like we are the opposite of like you know how like canadian white people will be like you know at the dinner table like you don't talk about politics or religion or whatever in my house 
in my family, always the opposite. The only things we're talking yeah. about are uh, politics and religion and yeah, who's yeah. fucking up and why <laughs> and all of that stuff. So that's kind of what I got raised in. And then like formal politics, I went away to school. I went to school in like my my mom was living here. We were living here in Toronto. And um, I went to school in New York. I went to Columbia. And um, part of that, like part of the reason that like I chose that school out of the other schools that I was looking at um, was, uh, was because of Barack Obama, who at that time had just like been senator, um, elected senator. I read his book. Um, his first book, Dreams from My Father, and, like, that really, like, like, my life, but, like, not, not, like, the same, but rhyming, you know, and it just felt, mm. and, I mean, I mean, it's New York, like, yeah. I mean, I was a kid that, that came up on, on hip-hop, like, New York was as close to heaven as you could get, <laughs> and I was just, so I was super excited to go, and, and then while, while I was there, um, kind of got involved in some like campus stuff um the school was trying at the time and eventually succeeded in like taking over a whole bunch of land um in like upper harlem um and so like the students were organizing to like try and protect the people who lived there or get them like enough settlement money to be able to move to someplace like decent make sure that like when we like when Colombia took over all this land and built all this shit that the people who used to live there would be able to use those services. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like 2007 rolled around and because America's like never not campaigning, the presidential campaign started like a year and a half early. Um, and, uh, and like I was in New York, Hillary Clinton was a Senator from New York. So like, 95% of the people that I was kind of rubbing shoulders with, like people doing like labor stuff or democratic politics stuff or organizing were like Hillary people. Yeah. Um, and my, uh, one of my college professors was a Hillary, like was a personal friend of Hillary Clinton. And like, I led like first the like chapter on Columbia of like students for Obama, like the like four of us. <laughs> um, and then eventually, like, uh, got the opportunity to run the student wing of a campaign for the state. Um, and, and like, that's kind of how I, I got into it. Like, first, because there was just nobody that was willing to do this. And, like, I still remember to this day, I told my teacher, oh, I'm going to, like, work on the Obama campaign. I'm going to run New York State. We're going to, like, try and organize New York State, which is Hillary, Hillary's turf for Obama. And, like, also, like, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, other places nearby. And she was like, well, you know, I understand why you have to do this. This is a white lady. Um, I understand why you have to, why you feel like you have to do this. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy for you and proud of you. But, you know, when Hillary wins, you just come talk to me and we'll find you someplace on the campaign where you can work. Wow. (laughs) And like, she's a good sport though, because like, she still tells that story in her intro to political science class. (laughs) It's like, that's why you got to have the elections. You never know, right? Yeah. And that's, that's how I got started in politics is um, using Facebook to like find out where kids on campus lived and like using Facebook to like organize people to like go talk to people. Are you registered to vote? Where are you registered to vote? Oh, don't register to vote in New York. That's useless. You're from mm-hmm. New Hampshire. Go vote at home. 
um, when is your primary, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and that's how I got into formal politics. And then from there, I really just, I went around and did other things, but I always, it was always where I was coming back to. And, you know, here I am. Okay, I got, I got two questions. First one is, how did your mother take to you <laughs> leaving to New York? Because I know how my mom would feel if, yeah. well, when when I left for certain instances, uh, she she caused all sorts of hell and cried as I walked out the door. So how, how was it for you? It was actually, it's, it's very much the opposite. Like it became, okay. later on, it became a thing, but initially... <laughs> Um, I wanted to go to school in Ontario. I wanted to be close to my friends. Like I had lived a very, like my childhood was like full of like, we, I don't even know, like I, maybe like I'd been to, by the time I was going to university, like nearly a dozen different schools. Like I moved a lot and I had like finally like found people that like I liked that were in my neighborhood. Um, and then, um, I, I was just ready to like be here, um, but uh, my mom's a teacher. She's like an educator, and she always was like had had dreams of me doing something different. And I remember like, uh, <laughs> so I I, I didn't want to go to school in the U.S. She was like, "You are going to an Ivy League institution. If I have <laughs> like, if I have to drag you there myself." And so we were having this like back and forth and um, I refused to take the SATs, right? Like wouldn't do it because if you take the SATs, then that means that you have to entertain the possibility that you're going to an American school. So I was like, right. not doing it. All the kids <laughs> at my, I like my, the fancy private school that I went to on scholarship were like taking like SAT prep classes and like walking around with the books, with the practice tests. And I was like, fuck that. Nope. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> And so we went, like, we we drove up to, I think it was Queens, for a weekend. Um, and I was going to go see the campus. This was one of the places I want to go. Um, and we, like, get to uh, one of the campus buildings. Um, and, like, um, I get out of the car, because um, we're going to go on a tour, is what I've been told. Um, I get out of the car, and she doesn't get out of the car, and then the doors lock. And then the window rolls down like about like this much. And she's like, you have your backpack? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, all of your pen, like your, your pencil case and your calculator and everything is in there. Um, go inside and take the SAT. I'll be back in four hours. And she drove away. <laughs> and so then I was like, okay, so either I'm gonna sit on this step for four hours or I'm gonna go inside and take the stupid test. So I went inside and I took the test and then because I did well on the test, then like I was like kind of cajoled into like going and seeing schools. And I went to see a couple of places and I went to New York and I was like, all right, fine. All right, all right, fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, okay, I wanna do this. Like I wanna, I wanna be here. And so she won. Um, and then after that, I wanted to stay in New York, and that was not something that she wanted. But I was like, "Hey, you know, like this is what you did." Um, so yeah, it was it was very much the the opposite situation. My mom was like always dragging me, you know, kind of kicking and screaming to like the brighter future, like very much like you know the immigrant hustle, 
like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like be twice as good, you know, be better than these white people, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that was my experience. That's that's amazing, though, that she gave you that support and gave you that that push that you didn't you may not even know that you needed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, What was what was it like? You know, you're working on the, the Obama campaign and then, you know, when you actually have a feeling like he might actually win. Oh, and like initially it was very like, no, like, and people don't remember this, I think so much. Cause like, you know, once after, like, I mean, it's been, it's been, it's been like 12 years now. Like, so, and he was president two terms and like, everybody loves him, um, especially in comparison. And so like all of the rough edges get smoothed over. Um, but like when when I started working on that campaign, like he was just like a good talking brown dude with a funny name. And like <laughs> they were like, oh, you know, he should weigh his turn. And and it was very it was like it was a really nobody thought that we had a chance. And I mean, like nobody like early on, um, even black like even black communities weren't backing him. They were with Hillary because, like, they, like, you know, that they know the game, like America, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like she was established. She's established. Yeah. Um, and people weren't gonna like stick their neck out if they didn't think that, you know, this was a person who could like win over white people. And I like came home for Christmas and had that conversation with like multiple members of my family who were like, listen, he's great, but, um, you know, like these white people aren't gonna vote for this guy. And and so that was the that became kind of like the the driving thing for all of us was like we've gotta win one of these early white states. And if we can win one of these early white states and show show people that white people will buy into this, then we can run the table because everyone else will buy in. And then that that's that's kind of what happened. We won Iowa, I slept on a whole bunch of basements in like corn farmers houses and shit <laughs> and and um yeah and, and like a, all a bunch of a bunch of kids like used what were at the time like new all these new tools like Facebook and like Google Docs and shit and I mean they ran a great campaign at the very top, but like for those of us who were like doing the field work, it's just it felt like like I I, I was convinced like the night he won, um, I like went I went back to school from the campaign office because I wanted to be with my friends and also I wanted to be in Harlem when he won, um, yeah. <laughs> and like it was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life or that I expect I will experience again. Like it was, it was like the world, like the the world was just different. Like mm-hmm. people and like, like I was, we went like the whole campus poured out into Harlem, like emptied. Um, and everybody in Harlem outside, people dancing, like people, black people dancing with cops on top of cop cars mm-hmm. in Harlem. Like, wow. <laughs> like, it was, it was like, it was, it was like, it was magic. And of course, um, uh, it did not continue to be that way, <laughs> but it was, it was, 
spectacular. And and like after that, I was kind of like, you know, like if we can, if I can do something like this, like, you know, like the kind of feeling after, especially like, I mean, now with Trump and everything, people forget how much George Bush just made everybody just so like despondent about what mm-hmm. was going to happen right like and and people felt like you know um things could maybe get better and that feeling was just something that i've always wanted to to reproduce in 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 people the feeling that like you know that if we that like i know they don't want us to come together but if we can do that then we can we can get some we can get stuff done that we can make things better for for people like our parents who like had to work way too hard to get the like littlest things. Um, and, and that was kind of, that was it. Um, from then on, I was just, that was what I was going to be doing. So a bunch of my friends went to wall street and went to like, like, um, to like consulting companies, like went to McKinsey and like all that other stuff. And I was like the poor, <laughs> like working in like nonprofit causes and political staff and like all of that shit. And I'm, I mean, I'm still that guy in my friend group from college. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, it just. Uh, so going from like, obviously, you said you found, saw similarities in, in Barack's story as your own and going from reading that book to now, you know, playing a part in helping him win, win a, a presidency, right? Yeah. Did you ever take a time to like reflect on that and kind of pat yourself on the back like I did that shit? <laughs> like it's even not, though it's minuscule, no, but like you know, little, still like it's it's a big deal. No, no, it's a it was it was. Listen, I I mean, for so long I was convinced I was like, I am a I am a very like I live in my head a lot and <laughs> like for the longest time I was like. I peaked at like 20. <laughs> this is the best thing that I will ever do in my professional life. And I was in school and now I'm just going to be chasing this forever and not even getting close. And like, that was, and like for a long time, it like, it felt, it felt that way. And like everyone, like five years after I got out of college, I'd be going to do jobs and I'd be like, okay, I'm talking about like, this is what I want to do in this organization. This is what I think we can accomplish. And it almost became like an annoying thing where people would be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, tell us about Obama. And I was like, <laughs> no, but like, that's done now. Like, like, that's good. I'm happy. He's president. He's great. But we're off that now. We're trying to like move the ball further. And people were just not like not interested. Um, and I was like, for a long time, I felt like, oh, no, this is it. Like, um, I'm going to be just like like one of those like guys who was like high school quarterback and then like never did anything, you know, (laughs) Al Bundy. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, Like the political Al Bundy. (laughs) And then like, I got really lucky. I like, I managed to catch lighting in a bottle twice. Um, and like, I got to like sort of do a similar thing here. Um, and then kind of have been trying to, you know, Canada likes to think that we're better than than the U.S. Um, it's, it's like it's like you know like if we if a country could have tattoos that would be like 
you know, right here. Um, Across the belly. Yeah, man, like, like, thug life, like, better than America right here. Um, But trying to get, you know, Canada to a place where, like, well, first, we have, like, the first racialized leader, and, like, what does that mean? And um, trying to, like, get people from these communities, like, to give, to empower us and to, like, bring us into the halls of powering give us the voice that we deserve, you know? And so I've been I've been very fortunate to be able to take what I learned back then and all the things I learned since and be able to continue to apply that and like build it and grow it. And yeah. Yeah, were there any uh, similarities that you noticed, you know, when you're working on Barack Obama's campaign, obviously that was the first time that, you know, a black politician had ever got to that height. And then now coming back to Canada, you supported Jigmeet Singh in helping yeah. first person of color get to the height that he is at now. Yeah. Um, were there any parallels in terms of, I guess, resistance that you noticed as you were campaigning or even even in ways that the media might have oh, yeah. covered covered both candidates and how inequipped they are just to talk about race? Yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, there's some like there's a bunch of parallels in experience. Um but like art one thing that is different and like um shouts to Jigmeet for this like because at the the team around Barack Obama and you I mean you understand American structural inequality and stuff um but like the vast majority of his early team um is is like it's almost entirely white people Mm -hmm. right um and like a lot of them were young you know their kids in college and stuff um, like his his speechwriters were all like, you know, twenty something year old like guys. Um, but I remember when I was just like doing my doing my thing, shit disturbing on Twitter and like writing like snarky editorial pieces and stuff. Um, and they like reached out and asked if I wanted to help like to come lead comms. Um, I had that like in the back of my mind, you know, like he's an old white guy running this campaign and a bunch of like establishment, like rally labor people. And I came into that room for the first time and I was like, my mind was blown because that campaign leadership team, Jigmeet was the oldest person on that team. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a bunch of young, mostly like racialized women like and that was very different from my experience with the obama campaign um and i think reflected the kind of strategy we ran which was kind of the opposite it's not like we have to get these white people it's like no listen like we have communities that are ready that want to see this and if we can if we can mobilize our community then we can like we like we we can take over this party like was the idea um and it worked it worked um like to this day um if anybody ever asks me about like about you know how we got there and whatever it's like um jigmeet very important like you know i wrote some things um we did like i did some some like messaging like some of that shit was good our campaign head michael hay like very smart strategic genius all of that shit but like wouldn't have happened without Navi. 
90% Navi. Like, the field game was so strong. Um, and that was that was completely different from, from my experience with the Obama campaign and from the way the Obama campaign built built things. But the, the experiences were the same, man. Like, I remember right after we won, this just absolutely fucking terrible interview with this asshole and like I work in media relations, so I probably shouldn't call him an asshole. But fuck this guy, like Terry <laughs> Malusky. Terry Malusky, yeah. Terry, oh one. my god, like, yeah. And it's just like the kind of exactly the same kind of things, like people just not understanding um, or caring, like how mm-hmm. to how to how to interact with this um, with somebody from from a different community. And we saw it in all sorts of different ways. That like that crazy lady that like ran up on him and started calling him like a secret Muslim and like all this, like all that stuff. Very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very similar to, to, to what I like, what we saw with Obama, but like maybe with a bit of a more polite edge um, yeah. because, because Canada, but like, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a, uh, yeah. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, you know? Yeah. And it was a, uh, it was it was very 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 similar and it's still happening right like i mean we saw what happened recently when um when jagmeet was trying to get like the bare minimum <laughs> for people who were getting killed in police custody or in police involved deaths to just be like you know this institution the rcmp um which was created to um monitor and control indigenous populations which is created an institution created for a racist purpose this institution has systemic racism in it can we say that and then can we like look at some ways how we can address that so that like they so that less people die like basic basic bare minimum yeah bare minimum and he needed and he needed unanimous consent to like just get it going and this guy like had to say no right and and when he said like obviously that this is racist because it is when something like i've been and i've had to say this like so many times right like the bare bare minimum it's like your choice is to help someone be like help someone keep them alive or allow people to hurt and kill them because of who they are because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity or the religious background. Like that's the definition of racism, the kindergarten ass definition that they teach you while you're eating paste. Like that's the, like the, and like people are like, Ooh, is it racist? And then this becomes, has become the conversation and like, Oh, should, mm-hmm. should Jigmeet have done it? And like, should he apologize? And like, what does this mean? And, and, and then like, it still, it still continues. Like the, um, this like these these con- like these countries in the West they're just they're unequipped and like largely uninterested right in doing the work of of um of addressing this stuff and thankfully we're in a place now where people have just had enough of it and and also because of this perfect storm of crisis like people can't look away you know. Mm-hmm um and so like we will see we're gonna i mean do our best to like everybody pulling hopefully in the same direction and 
and try and get as much done as we can to like to make things better in this in this moment while we have captured kind of the imagination and and the heart of i mean the the the, the of north america europe too like of the west right now you know we're contending with these things and hopefully we can we can we can get get something done yeah man these people tripping <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have you yeah. ever felt uh, just disenfranchised with the political process? I mean, that, that's a, a recent instance that you bring up with Jagmeet and the fact that he got thrown out for that, which is ridiculous. It's very easy for you know black folks, indigenous folks, other people of color to just be like, well, this is not for us. Yeah. You know, we can't go and say what we want to say because we're either going to be misrepresented or we're going to be brushed off. So do you ever, you know, because you're in the thick of it every day in politics, do you ever feel just like, what's the point? All the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. Um, uh, like, I would say half of my days, something happens that is just like either a small thing that is just like frustrating because it happens all the time or something like truly monumentally fucked up. And I'm just like, I should quit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I really want to quit. <laughs> like all the time, all the time. Um, when I worked in Ottawa, like, I used to get, like, I come up to the hill all the time, right? It's my job. And, like, I would be, like, get past security and be walking around and people be like, excuse me, can I see your pass? Like, all the time, all the mm-hmm. time. And it happened, to, it happened to other, like, it happened to MPs of color, too. Like, and there's not a lot of MPs, right? But, like, happened to them all the time, too. Felt it then. Like, and I feel it every day I walk into Queen's Park. Like, the place the these places are designed to make you feel like that like you walk into this gigantic palace right and there's all of this pomp and all this circumstance and all of this stuff that they stole from us like really like i mean like especially if like you're if you're from the if you're from from the subcontinent like Mm-hmm. Yo, like they like literally ran like a trillion dollars like of stuff out of your home like the crown jewels are still there like <laughs> and and like you come you come into this pace and it's just like white dude 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 and you're like it like what else are you supposed to feel right like the places the place is supposed to tell tell you who it's for and it does it does every day in in ways big and small and then there are just like tiny little like little pieces of 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 us like tucked away um yeah i i i feel it i feel it all the time and then also you're just you're dealing with like the the most difficult issues of the day and like a lot of the time those are things that have some kind of racial element to them like you know people people getting harassed by um police officers like disproportionately in black indigenous people of color communities like Grassy Narrows has mercury in their river and has had for like 30 years and these motherfuckers still won't fix it. Like still Mm -hmm. like, and like I had the opportunity about this time last year, maybe July to go up North and like see, um, and then like we were, we were trying to raise um, awareness and, um, and get the provincial and, and also the federal government to like, own up going into the federal election and like get these people water just water 
Yeah. Right. And basic necessities. Yeah, basic necessities. And it's like how else? How else could you? How else could you feel? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like your like, like you and all the people that you love are not worth anything to these people. Um, but I mean, that's how that's how they want you to feel. And I think like one of the the beautiful things about our communities and like whichever community you're from is this like history of taking that struggle and taking that pain and figuring out how to get something um, positive and transformative out of it. Like whether it's like, you know, whether it's indigenous communities continuing to persist and continuing to fight and hold on to their language and stand up for themselves. And like these people are now like coming, like a, a new generation of indigenous activists like running shit right now and like just killing it, right? Or like what um, what, we're, what we saw with Jigmeet, like the like Jardikala spirit, like that, like that is the, those are the things that, that keep you going. I actually just the other day we we yesterday what is time um, <laughs> honestly it's just like yeah we put out this thing we put out a, a, a commitment to action um, which a lot of people worked really hard on to say in Ontario look there's systemic racism policing and people are like calling for calling for us to do something to 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 stop spending all this money on militarized police forces with assault rifles and tanks and tear gas and spend that money on community, spend that money on mental health and on programs for young people and all of that stuff. And so we put out something to that effect yesterday and it made me think about this little, like just this this little thing. There is a plaque in Queens Park it's about like this big mm-hmm. um, and it commemorates uh, the number two construction battalions an all black um, construction uh, battalion because they wouldn't let them uh, fight in World War one um, and and it's it sits in it's in it's on a wall in the main hall of the lobby and like for a year I passed by it every day never never noticed it because it's so small right and then yeah. there's these gigantic hulking portraits of old white dudes in wigs um so like how are you how would you notice and one of our mpps um who is now the chair of the black caucus and our anti-racism critic laura may lindo um whose uncle uh was the first and only not white person to be speaker of the house alvin curling um she was like yo let me show you something a few like last year and she showed me this plaque and i went and like did my research and found out the story of this plaque and these guys who they wouldn't let them fight then they came home they didn't get any of the things that uh, that white soldiers got um they buried like they didn't get buried in the same place they buried them like the community had to put together the money to bury them in a in a place in halifax and the government had the had them do like they had these white headstones that aren't like vertical they're horizontal so the grass grows over them and so people want to go see your family member and you have to like pull through the glass like the grass to find your to find your dead loved one that was the situation except for this one little plaque which like community pushed really really hard for and they got this plaque 
and it's still there. And like now that she pointed it out to me, like sometime last year, every day that I'm in the legislature, even if I'm not in that wing of the building, I go out of my way to go by and see that plaque, to touch it. Because like, that is like, all these people did all of these things um, and deserve so much better than they got. And, and like, we're here because they were here. And I feel like, you know, we owe it to them. Like it's, shit is not fun. It ain't mm-hmm. sweet. Like, but you know, we owe it to them and we owe it to the future too, you know? to do what we can in in our moment, even if it sucks and you have to eat shit and it's hard. Um, And like, that is why I don't quit. Perfectly said right there. Yeah, beautifully put. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go into uh, speech writing a little bit. Um, How did you become a speech writer? And also, if you could share some advice to to young and upcoming people who want to become speech writers, like, when I was younger, I yeah. I used to I used I used to be the guy out of the homies who had to overlook everybody's speeches over BBM to their to their girlfriends. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I yeah. felt like with the, with the right guidance, I could have yeah. I could have maybe been a great speechwriter, but it yeah, didn't man. pan out so well for me. But uh, yeah. uh, maybe if you could share on how you became a speechwriter. Yo, man, that's 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 media relations right there. You're like these are the talking points. Stay on message, you know. Um, it was. A lot of a lot of this happens. I mean, by a combination of like you know, being in the right place, the right time, like circumstance, and um, cause like okay, I at the time when I started working for Jigmeath, when I came on the campaign to run comms for him, I was working at a hip hop festival in Toronto, Manifesto. I was running their communications, so like I was doing like new. Like um like Instagram videos and like um, promotion with like the artists to get people to buy tickets to the festival and like radio giveaways and like all that kind of stuff. And I was writing like my political shit in my like off the side of my desk in my kind of like my spare time, like mostly like writing Twitter threads and like screaming into the void. Um, <laughs> and then. Um, I had done some work around carding, um, some organi- like some organizing some activism around carding with Desmond Cole and a couple of other people that were kind of in that space at that time. And like that was the first time I kind of heard of Jigmeath because Jigmeath was one of the first people in provincial politics to actually come out against carding. Um, and so like the back of my mind, I was like, okay, this guy, like this is a guy to watch. Um, and they were like, hey, we've been seeing what you've been doing. Like, do you want to come here? Help us lead communications. And like in the back of my mind, I was like, I mean, like, I guess I could do this, but like, I don't know how the fuck to do this. But yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and I was just like, you know, um, learning how to take those skills that you thought weren't applicable. And it turns out that they were. And I think a lot of that is like you, you're, you were just saying, um, a lot of people don't know, like, especially people of color, right? Like, these aren't the kinds of things that people tell us. Like, I never knew that speechwriter was a job I could have. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and 
And I and I say that as a person who grew up in a house that politics was always being talked about. I watched The West Wing as a teenager, like a dorky teenager. So I knew there were speechwriters. I just never thought I could be one, right? I knew that this was a this was a thing that people did, but it did. I didn't seem like a thing that I would do. Um, somebody took a chance and was like, "Yo, this kid has talent." Um, you know, if you can write a Twitter essay, you can probably write a press release. Or, or if you can write a press release for a hip-hop festival, you could probably write a press release about a political debate. Um, if you can write a really tight tweet that, like, or a really, or, like, design a really moving Instagram video or something like that, then maybe you can write a talking point um, for a debate or a talking point for a media interview that, like, if you can tell this kind of story, maybe you can tell this kind of story. And I was given the opportunity to translate the things that I knew how to do into a different place. Um, um, again, I was given the opportunity, like I, I, I wrote speeches for myself, kind of. I wrote op-eds for myself and for other people. Um, but I wasn't like, I'm not one of those people who like has been like, there are especially in the US, there's like career speechwriters, right? Like political people who like, they write for like five, six, seven, eight, nine different people and they go from office to office and that's what they do, they're a speechwriter or they're a ghostwriter and they ghostwrite people's books. Um, that was not where I thought that I was going. Um, but I got the opportunity and then I was like, hold on, like this is a thing that I could do. And I was given the chance to do it and I did well enough that I was given the chance to do it again. Um, and then, you know, um, I think like we, a lot of us, we all underestimate how much like the one little thing that you can do for somebody, how much that can change their life. And I'll, I like, I managed to, to be, to get where I am because a lot of people at a number of different junctures in my life decided to take a chance on me. Um, and like, I think that, that that's also why we collectively, like our society, but all of us, each of us individually, have to like look around at like where we are and what we can do for somebody else and figure out how to pay that forward. Um, because you like, you never know whether like that kid who like has the, the nice, like the, the nice Instagram comment game, you know, and like, and, and, um, or can like, write a tight 16 but like he's probably not going to be a rapper you know like that that kid um if you give him or if you give her or them the benefit of the doubt like that you could who knows what you could be doing you know who knows what you could be launching it's very important in the times we are in right now right it's there's so many people who are even just they are already established in their field yeah. but they're just not even just getting that you know look you know, just because they're a minority or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. And it's like, it's very powerful that you said that because I feel like that is the, the ultimate way we're going to see this change within politics and within the workforce as well, is when somebody who is sitting in those, in those, in those high chairs to, to reach down and, you know, take a chance on somebody. So that's a, I'm happy yeah. that it panned out for you. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that, that is like, not just in individual small ways, but like something that is now one of the like things that I am really focused on in my life. 
So this year, um, or in 2021, um, we're going to be launching uh, the Black Youth Fellowship at Toronto City Hall. This is my plug for one of my programs. <laughs> so sorry. Um, but it's like it takes it takes black black young people who have the potential, who have the passion, who have like the skills, but they don't know somebody. And like almost everybody in any room in politics is there. Some of them are the, some people are there because they deserve to be there. But most people are there because somebody knew them and gave them that opportunity. Right. And so for our communities, what we have to do is like build in a, a build into the institution the thing that white people have informally, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what this this fellowship is: is access to power. I have had the opportunity. Um, people have given me a leg up, and now I'm in a place where I can, with my community, with our board at the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. Um, with like my ability to like talk to staffers across the aisle in the liberal camp or even in the conservative camp and say, listen, this is an important thing for us to do to give young people a chance. And like, I I want it to be that like 20 years from now, somebody who might be like me um, doesn't need to like have to figure it out, you know? doesn't need to have to, or, or God, like God willing, fuck, like doesn't need to have to show their pass three times a day at the job that they're in, you know? Um, I, and, and so it is up to us to like, you know, we climb the ladder, good for us, but like let it back down behind you and like build some guardrails or something, you know, leave it better than you, leave it better than you found it. Mm-hmm. Very well that's, that's beautifully said. I mean, I remember when I got my first real job out of university, you know, yeah. I, I'd like finish my bachelor's, finish my master's. Even at that point, I was still working, you know, minimum wage, still doing night shifts, still on that grind. And yeah. it took me a couple of years to find like an actual like salary job with benefits. Yeah. And I remember, so I'm like at the bottom of the rung there, I'm working there, making a little bit of money. As far as like other coworkers, they're all young kids that are fresh out of university, white kids yeah. that are that are put in that job because like they're dating so-and-so's mom or like so-and-so who's like mom is a high up in the company you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so like yeah there's a there's a lot that goes into that as far as like immigrant communities or racialized communities where we don't have that access so I think that's that's a beautiful initiative that you're putting forward yeah and and this is the first it's the first year of this one there was a Muslim um there was a Muslim youth fellowship that that we've done the urban alliance has done in, in partnership with the city of toronto there's been two cohorts of that and like this stuff works there's been 28 fellows five of them are no seven of them are still in city council offices five of them work for a provincial or a federal member another five of them work in um in the public service and the bureaucracy uh, um, at the federal provincial or municipal level and then another three of them work in like the nonprofit landscape doing something that intersects with government. So like when we get a chance, like we, we shine. Mm-hmm. So I like, my hope is that this program, which we're still raising money for and people can go donate to it at youthfellowship.ca slash donate. Uh, that's youthfellowship.ca slash donate. When people we're, we're raising the money for that. And if we we're, we've got some of the buy-in from the city, 
we want to run this program in Toronto, but I want to see this in every city legislature in the country, in every major legislature, in the, every provincial legislature, and I want to see it in Parliament too. Mm-hmm. I want one day to to like to be able to like to look around and and not be alone in those rooms and know that like if I go move on to do something else that there will be people to continue the work um, and that that will will keep moving it will keep moving it forward um, and so that is that is that is my hope because even when we like when Jagmeeth became leader and we won and you know like a few of us you know we we packed up our shit and we went to Ottawa to come like you know try and get shit done like we were we were not uh, typical, <laughs> right? <laughs> like right. The, the even in the even in the progressive parties, the the parties that like the NDP, which I believe is the progressive party, and then the Liberals and the other guys who say they're progressive. But anyway, whatever party you're in, like <laughs> the situation is the same, right? Because these are these are white colonial power structures, and they don't include us, and mm-hmm. so. Even when you even when you get the guy at the top, or even when you like you elect a Matt Green, or um, or you elect a Romeo Saganash or whatever, like there's still so much work to be done in like making sure that the other people in the room um, also bring that kind of perspective. Um, and so that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're we're getting close to the end here. Um, but yeah, just want to just first of all, just compliment you on your Punjabi pronunciation, man. It's on point. I had a lot of practice. I had a lot of practice <laughs> for like until I moved back to Toronto and started working for the Ontario NDP, like the Instagram uh, algorithm thought I was Punjabi. <laughs> like because I was doing so much stuff for Jigmeet on my phone and like Facebook and Instagram say they don't track that shit, but obviously they do. Cause I don't know why like I'm getting ads for cure pens. Like <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Um or like like Sidhu Moose videos popping up in my feed and I don't follow any of those people, like you know. Um, oh man. Yeah, but uh, I had a, a, a I also had like I just you know I had the beautiful I had the opportunity to to work with Jigmeet and the Punjabi community was so like you know the like I sat in the gurdwara and ate the dope food and like people were kind and opening and open and welcoming um, and yeah it was it was it was beautiful I got got a lot of love for for the Punjabi community. Uh, yeah, like one thing I remember when I first met Jagmeet, uh, I, I, like he'd said like hello and uh, like he's like what's your name and I'm like Guggen and then like he'd he'd met somebody else and they had said like the the, the white version of their name, of their name, yeah, and, and and he always goes no like pronounce your name the way you sh-. so mm-hmm. I remember that was like one of my first interactions was just seeing that right and I yeah. was like that's dope that you know like he takes the time to to make you feel comfortable right because not a lot of people are comfortable because of certain instances or whatever it may be insecurities or whatever but it's like that was such like a positive thing for me to see and 
that guy has been a class act every time I've met him. And, you know, I got to know him a lot more and, you know, it's uh, it's the type of person he is. So obviously, you know, being with a guy like that, the Punjabi is going to wear off on you as well. Yeah, man. I mean, like that, I think that is so, it's so powerful. A, because like of the way that he does it for himself, he will say like, um, someone will introduce, he'll introduce himself. He'll say how to say his name properly. Right. And it's in, whether it's in an interpersonal thing or whether it's with a, an, an interview or whatever. Um, and for like so many of us that came from places and like and white people never give a shit about how to say your name right or like made fun of your accent or the food that you ate or whatever else. Like to see somebody take up their space and say that one so important. But then to do the same thing in other in other communities. One thing that he does that I rate so hard that most politicians don't do is that obviously you can't speak a zillion languages, but like whenever he meets somebody, he has in his back, like in his back pocket, a couple of phrases from like how to say hello, how to say whatever in their language. Um, And when he goes to speak to people, like he will greet you in your language if he can do it, right? Um, Or like, you know, you go to a, um, a community and you know how to, like, say thank you or say, um, say like, some part of the land acknowledgement in the appropriate indigenous language. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, like, that respect, like, as opposed to this, like, Canadian diversity thing where we all, like, are, where we all try to be or pretend to be white. Um, like, that, that, I, that I rate. And so, like, if that means that I have to like listen to Uchi Anigaleteriatia like a whole bunch of times <laughs> to like get it like kind of right then fuck yeah I'm gonna do that because like that respect and that care was shown to me yeah, and I like think... that's that's part of the game too you know I feel like he he's he has that in his back pocket in large part because you know we would go to Gurdwara or we would go to events like at City Hall and whatnot. And, you know, white politicians would try to come to pander for votes and they would try to say our greetings, but they would, they, they didn't even practice it. It's like someone yeah. just told it right before they went up on stage and they would just totally butcher it. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that I do whenever I write greetings for somebody is like I go find out because this, and this is a thing that Jigmeet did and it, and it was like so, it, it, stayed with me and so whenever I write for anybody else and I have to write for a community that is um, non-Anglo or non-Franco like I go find out what the greeting is and I write it out in phonetic so that Mm. the person who's giving the speech can take a moment before the speech and like figure out how to say what the thing is say it to themselves once and then go on the stage and say it properly and like it's a small thing to to um to a dominant population like it's a small thing to white people um but like to be seen in that way is is big it's real big Mm -hmm. yeah so we're just about to wrap up but last thing we like to do on this show is we like to go around and everybody that's present today to name just one thing that they're grateful for in the moment Mm -hmm. so it could be like an item or an object you have in your life or a person in your life that you're grateful for just any energy that you want to honor today that's good. Um, ooh. I am grateful for uh, I am grateful for organizers, um, for organizers and for activists, because um, I, I work in formal politics, right? 
Um, I come from a like shit disturbing activist background, but that's not that's not most of the time my lane anymore. Um, but like, there are people. Let me let me run that back. Right now, we are talking about in Canada <laughs> defunding the police. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the premier. I saw the prime minister get questions about this from the from the gallery the Queen's Park Gallery, which is one of the most establishment galleries in the country from the federal, from the gallery at Parliament. That is, like, I could not, I couldn't have imagined that, like, I couldn't imagine that last year that that would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the same way, like, 12, 13 years ago, I couldn't have, I could not have imagined that a black guy from, who's, dad was from kenya whose middle name was hussein would be president twice and be one of the most popular presidents and that is that's activism that's moving the window of what is possible so people think to themselves like oh wow we could do that and then bringing people along to get there and then like most of the time it is like thankless shit work you do a whole bunch of stuff everybody thinks you're crazy um but then something changes or the 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 amount of the work piles up and piles up and piles up and then the dam breaks and like without those people we wouldn't have all of the things that that we value we wouldn't have a 5 day work week we wouldn't have um we, we wouldn't have not racist or less racist laws. We wouldn't have a racialized person as the head of a major party. Um, and, and it's all thanks to the people who do the work. And most of the time, nobody knows what their name is. Um, and so I am, I am very thankful for those people. Um, and I, I, I just hope we keep following where they're going. Uh, well said. Uh, one thing that you mentioned earlier on that kind of really resonated with me, you just talked about how, you know, at home, just being around the elders was just that political yeah. conversation was always constantly there. Oh, yeah. uh, it was the exact same thing I feel for myself and for a lot of Punjabi households where, mm-hmm. you know, that those conversations around, you know, natural resources, around language rights, religious rights, yeah. like that, that's the stuff I grew up hearing. That was kind of my my informal education. And as oh, a kid... Awesome. It was like, I didn't really want to pay attention as a kid. Or it like, it's hard to just sit there and yeah. listen to old folks talking. It's like, yeah, this is yeah, whatever. Yeah. This has no relevance. But then the older I've got, the more I appreciate the, the game that they were kicking. Now I have more yeah. of an understanding of it. And so I'm grateful to, to have grown up in an environment like that where political conversation and being informed was a way of life. Like, you know, we didn't have the, the benefit or the privilege to be apolitical or to be uninformed. Mm-hmm. And that was something that they kind of ingrained upon me. So I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off uh, the same vibes. I'm very grateful for uh, you know most of my politics knowledge came from my father. Uh, my father was part of a comrade movement in Punjab when he was a teenager, and I can't even fathom like you know like yeah. me at 18, 19 being so passionate about politics and creating change and. Um, that is also the reason kind of why he had to 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 flee uh, Punjab as well. Well, India, um, because, you know, 
for a lot of those people, the reality was you either end up dead or in jail when you fight the system. And but uh, that never left him. Obviously, my father, like a lot of immigrants, just, you know, uh, went into regular labor jobs. And but, you know, like Noy said, every every time when we get to sit down and and that's usually when we have a meal because yeah. our parents are usually working or, you know, that's just the the regular life for, for an immigrant is when you sit down, that is when you get to have your, your, your debates or your conversations that are more meaningful. So, and for me, it was always just learning about, you know, whether it was Karl Marx or things like that, which I didn't think I was paying too much to attention to back then. But as I grew older, like noise, I did kind of pick up books on these things and kind of educate myself more on the thinking that my father had kind of instilled on me in me from very young. And, you know, till this day, the OG sits on the couch and CNN. And like you said, you know, he will always say what Trump did today and we'll <laughs> laugh about it. And, yeah, you know, man. it's, it's a, I'm, I'm thankful because it is, it is one of the major things that we relate in other than sports. So, yeah. uh, you know, I get to have uh, a lot of, uh, time with my pops talking about those things. So I'm I'm appreciative that you know politics brings that to us as frustrating as it can be. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm very happy that my father instilled that in me. That's beautiful. Right on. So I, I think we'll wrap it up there. Jerry, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show and making Thanks time for, for us. Thanks for having me. I know you got a lot going on. You're doing a lot of great work. So we we thank you for making the time out for us. Thank oh, you man. so much, man. And also, uh, where can where what's the ads? We I want to see these Twitter rants. If <laughs> <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at at J A Walker. Um, that is where most of the ranting and the gifts happen. Um, lots and lots of gifts. Um, <laughs> and like again, uh, go to youthfellowship.ca/slash/donate. Uh, we we we've been raising doing a really good job we raised about a, a hundred thousand dollars in a week wow. and we are um we are trying to put that money into the first um stage of the program and then building it out so you know we can come to brampton city hall next and then we can go from there you know and so i just i want to encourage people to to do that as well um thank you guys so much for the opportunity to talk with y'all and to chop it up and you know be well likewise Awesome. With that said, this has been another episode of the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. Okay.